This past Tuesday was Valentine's Day. I hope that's not news to anyone with a significant other. <laughs> but assuming you didn't forget, you probably bought a card or some flowers or chocolate. Maybe you went on a nice date night or you got to watch a rom-com together. Whatever you did, the end goal was to communicate through various avenues your love and commitment to the other person. I was at a grocery store on that Tuesday picking up a few things with the girls, and um, of course there are a ton of people with balloons and flowers and chocolate and everything in hand. And it was really, this might sound really obvious and duh, Seth, but it's really easy to tell who had a significant other that day, because everybody was standing in line with all of these outward displays. Any other day of the week, you think they're in trouble. But have you ever had that happen? I've had that happen like twice. I'm buying flowers because I love my wife. I walk up to the counter. Oh, what'd you do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Apparently, you can only buy flowers on Valentine's Day. But it got me thinking, how do we as Christians express our love to God in a way that's as clearly visible as flowers or chocolate or a card in a grocery line? What marks a lover of God? And I think there are some things, and we are going to look at two ways in our passage in Luke this morning that Jesus shows how to be people who love God. We'll start reading in Luke. Matt just read it, but we'll read just the first piece again. Luke 19.45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. If you know this Bible study from any of the other Gospels, you'll notice that this version of the story is really short. It's the shortest version of all of them. There's no mention of Jesus methodically braiding a whip together or having a conversation with pigeon sellers or healing people or teaching any other parables to the Pharisees. It's basically just... He gets in there, he kicks him out, and he starts teaching. That's it. And I think Luke does this on purpose. Remember, we have four Gospels, not just because four people wanted to compete to see who had the best story of Jesus. Each of the authors has a specific intention in their writing. They're writing to specific people for specific purposes to have certain themes and narratives that run throughout that display a different element of Jesus, either fulfilling the Old Testament or showing how he is a new covenant or whatever it may be. There's a lot of different reasons. And so in Luke's account of this passage, I think it's really short in order to highlight the quotes, the words that Jesus speaks. Because he quotes two Old Testament passages, and I think they're incredibly important here. Pro tip for your personal Bible study. Whenever Jesus, the Son of God, quotes the Bible, the Word of God, pay attention. Go back and look at the context of what he's saying, because when he quotes the Old Testament, usually he doesn't even quote a full sentence. It's just a little piece. But remember, he's living in this oral society that understands and remembers a lot more scripture than we tend to on a daily basis. And so when Jesus references some little thing, everyone thinks back to the entire story. And they know what he's saying, even though all he says is maybe a tiny portion of what the whole story contains. So the first thing that Jesus says is this. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. And that's in Isaiah 56. And if you look at just that, that sentence, my house shall be a house of prayer, you can kind of come to the conclusion, okay, so 
Jesus is concerned about making sure that the temple is only used for churchy things, right? You know, keeping it pristine and clean, using it for the right types of things. I grew up in Portland, and whenever we go to the coast, my favorite place to go was Pacific City. I don't know, how many of you have been to Pacific City before? Anybody? A couple, okay. Um, it's a beautiful beach. It's smaller, and the, the town that's there doesn't have a whole lot of amenities, and so not as many people would go there. But it's this beautiful beach with a bunch of rocks out in the ocean. Um, and then the main attraction is there's this massive, like, 250-foot dune just to the north of the beach. And you can climb that, and then you can see way down the coastline. And at the top of that, there's also this jetty that comes out, and there's other rock outcroppings that you can climb out on. And if you go past the fence and ignore the do not pass the fence signs, there's a lot of really cool things, so I'm told. <laughs> but there was this one famous rock, there's a picture of it up here, called Duckbill Rock. I don't know if this uh, reminds anybody of anything, but it was, it's about eight, maybe nine feet high or so. You could climb up on top of it and take pictures and stuff like that. It was really, really popular. Search Duckbill Rock. There'll be hundreds of pictures of people with this. Well, a few years ago, there were some tourists, people visiting. I'm not sure who they were. Nobody really knows. Um, but there was a video that came out of them pushing this rock over. Apparently, one of them had, like, broken their leg on it or something, and they were saying that it was a hazard. And so they started to push it over so that nobody else would get injured on it, um, and some other random guy caught them doing it and pulled out his phone and started videoing it and yelling, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? So it went totally viral a few years ago. It was all over the news, in Oregon at least. And um, it was so funny reading the various comments and reactions to that video and the news story, because, um, I mean, people were just, like, absolutely outraged. They were like, everybody, one of those people needs a punch in the face. They need years and years of jail time. If you look at the, the consequence for destruction of property on a public space, it's usually like $450 fine and maybe like a little bit of community service time. But people are just like, lock them up for good. They pushed a rock over. <laughs> now, I'm not recommending you do that. But this thing was just as likely to get knocked over by a good windstorm that they get out there as it was by somebody else. Eventually, this thing would fall. And yet there was this reaction as if this thing was sacred, like something about this shouldn't have been messed with. Is that what Jesus is concerned about with all of the sellers in the temple and the money changers? Maybe. That's a part of it. And that's not even necessarily a bad application. But is that all that Jesus was mad about? Let's go read the context of Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. And Jesus quotes, I believe it's verse 7, we'll get there. <clears throat> Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let, that, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's what Jesus quoted there, and he didn't add all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet another to him besides those already gathered. Is this passage primarily about keeping holy things holy? No. It's about foreigners. It's about outcasts. It's about the marginalized being welcomed into the presence of God as his people. This should have been, I can't decide. This either should have been absolutely outraging to some Israelites and absolutely, well, yeah, God, obviously that's what you've always been doing to those who truly understood scripture. Because this goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Please get to know that passage. That is one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. It set up, sets up the entire meta narrative for everything God does and the reason he does pretty much everything to Israelites and everyone else in all of the Old Testament. That is when he calls Abram to be his man to start his people. And he changes his name to Abraham. He calls him the father of many nations. And in verse 3 of Genesis 12, he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So God's intention from the beginning was never to create an exclusive club of people for himself, saving some while everyone else burns. But look at what the Israelites have done with their privileged status as being people of God. So the second scripture Jesus quotes, he says, you have made it a den of robbers. That is quoting Jeremiah 7. So we'll turn there. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 3, or 4. Yeah, starting in verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of, den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So these are people who attend church on Sunday, call themselves saved, then spend Monday through Saturday doing whatever they want, participating in all kinds of evil and saying, well, but we are God's chosen people, so we're already in. My current participation in whatever does not matter. They're trying to have it both ways. The benefit of a relationship with God, all of his good blessing, eternal life, all of the things that he promises, and the benefits of being fully engaged in all that the world has to offer. It's interesting he calls them robbers, but what exactly are they robbing? If they're just living how they want to and then showing up on Sunday, why does Jesus quote this and specifically where he calls them robbers? Here's why I think Jesus gets so mad, not merely because the temple is being used for the wrong things. It is. But it's likely that the money changers and the sellers were set up in the outermost court of the temple, which was for Gentiles and for foreigners. 
So yes, they are robbing people of money at exorbitant exchange rates, and they claimed that you couldn't have any money that had any sort of face or any sort of inscription on it, so you had to change out your Roman money for the temple shekel, which it was an exorbitant exchange rate, and it was not a good deal for anybody, so they were also bleeding everybody dry financially. But they aren't merely robbing people of money. They are robbing people of God himself. And specifically, anyone who isn't a Jew, anyone they don't like, anyone they don't approve, anyone they don't want in their club. The temple was supposed to be a place where everyone who wants to have a relationship with God can. And the priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, they're supposed to be God's ministers to the whole world, to invite people in, to offer them cleansing, and to show them the presence and the goodness of God. They've turned the presence of God from a hospital for the sick and a home for the homeless into an exclusive club for the chosen elite. It makes me wonder what kind of barriers to the saving gospel of Jesus we have put in our own religiosity, even just the way that we do church, the assumptions that we bring to church on Sunday morning. Now, I will say to this church's credit, I think you guys are amazing at hospitality. You guys are so welcoming. I remember when Megan and I first came here, it was like we had 15 offers to go to lunch after church, and they just kept rolling in, and I hear over and over and over again that there are people all throughout, and it's not just staff members. In fact, it's rarely staff members. Uh, We aren't the reason you come here, and that's how it should be. (laughs) But there are just people who are gifted with different elements and abilities, and by the power of the Spirit, they are so welcoming, and they stay here because of the people, not because of how good the music is, or the new lighting system, or the fireside room remodel, or what have you, Carrie's Amazing Treats, whatever it is. As good as they are, that's not the reason they come here. They come here because you guys are welcoming. This place feels like a home. This place is where we say welcome, and I love that, so I encourage you guys to keep doing that, keep pressing into that. But The problem, even for us, who honestly I think are doing a pretty good job, is that even well-intentioned people add their own stuff, our our preferences, our desires, our opinions, to Jesus. And without even really knowing it, honestly, over time we create this Jesus plus Christianity, especially when it comes to the more sticky and troublesome issues, Jesus plus voting in a particular way. And I don't just mean because you like the guy, but like, is he pro-abortion or blah, 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 whatever, however you want to define that. Jesus plus voting a particular way. Jesus plus staying a virgin until your wedding night. Jesus plus never having been divorced. Jesus plus never questioning your gender or struggling with same-sex attraction. The problem is, is when you define a Christian as anything other than a broken and sinful person redeemed by the blood of Jesus who daily acknowledges their need of his sanctifying work, you limit who can be a Christian by your standards rather than by Scripture. There are things that disqualify you. Let's be absolutely clear. This is not universalism. But we make the road far more narrow than the Bible does most of the time. And that's what's so frustrating to me about this attractional model of church, which I don't really think we do, but it's been really popular the last 20, 30 years, is that we need to show people how good life with God is. We need to show people that Jesus' salvation works. We need to have evidence and prove that Jesus is worth following because everything in our life got better. Let Jesus speak for himself. What I think is far more effective is telling people, get in here. I need Jesus as badly as you do. You're in good company in here. 
I don't have it figured out. He loved me. He saved me. He's redeeming me. He's making me more like himself. I still mess up. I'm on the road. Get on the road with me. The Apostle Paul masterfully summarizes this in Ephesians chapter 2. I don't have it up on the screens, but I'm going to read through it. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. You can turn there if you want. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, so he's talking about Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. He's saying making one new people of God instead of Jews and Gentiles. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, hereby killing the hostility. When we define and limit who can be among the people of God based on our preferences and our biases, we reveal that we actually think this is our kingdom, not God's kingdom. The first thing, the first mark of people who love God is that people who love God love outsiders. People who love God show their love to God by loving outsiders, those unlike themselves. And this leads to the second point, because how do we keep from catering to our own preferences? How do we keep ourselves from starting to integrate and mix and intermingle the things that we prefer versus what the Bible says? Sort of gave it away. The antidote to preferences and biases is truth. So people who love God love the truth. And this is what Jesus is getting at in the second portion of our passage this morning. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're trying to trap Jesus by asking him a question that has no good answer. They don't really care about his answer here. They don't like him even if they do believe his answer, and most of them don't. But if Jesus answers that he has no authority, then they can really quickly just dismiss all of his words in front of all the people, discredit him, and he won't be an issue anymore. But if he answers that his authority is from God, the Pharisees are hoping that the Romans are going to squash him. Because the Romans, especially around the time of Passover, as he is entering into the city, remember there's a triumphal entry we're talking about, um, they were really on high alert for Messiah figures and any sort of like whispers of revolt or revolution or zealots of any kind because they wanted to maintain Roman peace. So Jesus is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here, depending on which way he answers. And so wisely, he flips the script with a classic political move. Well, let me answer that by asking you this. Move on in verse 3. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, but why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. 
So they answered that they do not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Like pretty much all the other times in the Gospels, as soon as the religious leaders think they have him trapped, he turns the situation upside down and places them between a rock and a hard place. And what's funny is that uh, the three answers they could have given, they chose the absolute worst. If they say John's authority is from heaven, they'd be lying, but they'd be correct. But they're people pleasers. If they say it isn't from heaven, that's what they actually believe, but they're afraid that people are going to kill them, take away their status, take away their significance, because they're people pleasers. And they didn't have the guts to be honest. So instead of a rebellious lie, or truthful and honest, but losing their social standing, they play dumb. Well, I don't know. (laughs) And in that answer, they immediately show themselves to be absolute fools. They have no interest in the truth. They are far more interested in maintaining their status among the people by schmoozing, people-pleasing, compromising their integrity. When I was probably... 10 years old or so, um, I was at my cousin's birthday party, and uh, we went to a laser tag place. I was homeschooled. Yes, add all of the caricatures and things you want on homeschooler. I probably fit. They were probably accurate. But my cousin was in public school, so most of the friends that were at this party were public school kids. Heathens. (laughs) Anyway, we all piled into my cousin's minivan after playing laser tag, and we're coming back from the place, and the boys are being 10-year-old boys, making crude jokes, you know, all kinds of fart noises and whatever, and being silly. But then the jokes kind of started getting increasingly dirtier, and and, and the words started getting quieter. And and at one point, one of the boys had a really good one, and so he whispered it to somebody, and they're, oh, man, oh! And then he whispers it to the next boy, and he whispers it to the next boy. And I'm sitting like, what's going on? Where's my turn? And and I ask, what's the joke? And the boy turns to me, no joke, and he says, No, no, this one is only for demented people. And in the frenzy of the noise, I yell out, I'm demented! (laughs) As soon as those words left my mouth, I immediately looked up at the passenger seat to my uncle, who was a pastor. (laughs) Like, what have I done? I know that's not true. I'm not demented. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. I don't know if he ever heard me or if we ever made eye contact, but he didn't have to because the second those words left my mouth, the spirit in me said, that's a lie. But I decided it was worth compromising my integrity, speaking a lie about myself, abandoning the truth in order to people please, in order to fit in, in order to maintain the status of insider with the boys. Psalm 86, 11 says this. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This prayer of David is so fascinating to me. The word that he chooses is so interesting. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. What does it mean by unite? That seems kind of weird to me. Isn't the heart like one thing? It loves what it loves. I think he's expressing to God the turmoil of the human heart, torn between two desires, 
Now, I want to give the religious leaders the benefit of the doubt. I really think they did love God. I really think they wanted to honor and serve him. But in their positions of privilege and power and status and the kind of rocky but sort of safe position they had among the Roman occupation, I think they got comfy. I think they decided this is pretty good. This is probably as good as it's going to get. So let's do everything we can to just keep this going. Having authority has benefits. And they began ignoring and rejecting the truth in order to remain in good standing with the people, with the Romans, with everybody, and hold on to those benefits as best they could. The problem is you can't have it both ways. In their compromise, they showed that they are not actually lovers of God. They love their status. They love the approval of man more than the approval of God. They loved the world more than they loved the truth. And they knew the truth. They were after Jesus because he spoke the truth and the truth compromised what they had going. I don't ever think that they were dumb and didn't understand what Jesus was about. My assumption is most of them knew he was the Messiah and did not like that version of Messiah. We're hoping to kill him off and see if God sends round two. In the Gospel of Matthew's telling of this part of the story, Jesus tells the religious leaders this in response to what he confronts them with here. Matthew 21, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. They spent so much time trying to stay unstained from the world while enjoying all of the world's benefits, that I think they lost the appetite for the truth. So when the truth shows up in broad daylight and smacks them across the face in both John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus and then the ministry of Jesus himself all throughout the land and then into the temple, it doesn't taste as sweet to them as their current way of life. And it threatens that way of life. Meanwhile, Jesus says in Matthew that tax collectors and prostitutes, those completely stained and consumed by the world, hear the truth and say, that is better than anything I have going here. Give me that. Give me Jesus. I am done with the world. There is only one truth, and it's being fully surrendered to Jesus. You can't have Jesus and the world. So people who love God show it by loving the truth. These two ways to show God we love him by loving outsiders and by loving the truth are summed up in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27. It says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a really simple verse, and the first part is really simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. It means love the hurting, love the broken. And if you don't think anyone you run into in your daily life is hurting or broken, then you don't know them well enough. I promise you, everyone in your life has some sort of hurt, most far more than you realize. Doing this means flinging the doors wide open on our church the doors of your home and the social gatherings with other believers and declaring that the hospital is open 
It's looking for people to heal. It's looking for people to save. It's looking for people who need Jesus as bad as we know we did and still do. It's believing that illegal immigrants are not a political problem to fix by building a wall, but hurting people looking for hope, grasping for Jesus even if they don't know it. And we've so often neglected this in a misguided effort to obey the second part of the verse in James. How do you keep yourself unstained from the world? So far, what has been, we thought, the most effective was distancing ourselves. Keep ourselves from getting contaminated. COVID lockdown, six feet, you're a sinner. That's not how to keep yourself unstained from the world. It's not by removing yourself. It's by knowing the truth. So that when the world presents its lies, and it will, because that's almost all it has, you can spot them, and you won't fall prey to the allure of power, money, pleasure. You can counter the lie with the truth and show everyone else that that is a lie. Because Jesus is the only filter. He's the only lens by which you can actually see the world's lies for what they are. It means taking every thought captive, submitting your internal thought life, your internal conversations to the truth of the gospel. That's what preaching the gospel to yourself is. It's thinking a stupid thought, saying it's a stupid thought, remembering that the gospel is the truth, and then telling that stupid thought to go away. I've had to work on that so hard. I have such an overactive imagination, and I am such, such, such a people pleaser. It is absolutely ridiculous. By the grace of God, I think I have been improving a lot over time. But it's a lot of that. It's a lot of preaching the gospel to yourself because the world's lies are not only external. Your sin nature is worldly. And that lies to you from within. The way you know the truth is by knowing the word of God. And that's so that you equip yourself, so that as you interact with the world, not pull away, dive in, interact, engage, bring light. As you do that, you bring light to the darkness, and the darkness scatters, rather than the darkness consuming the light inside of you. And there's no better way to know the truth than, you know, read the Word of God. You can't love God if you don't love the Word of God. I'm not saying it's easy to pick this thing up and read it every day, but if you hunger for truth, there will not be a single meal more satisfying than the scripture. Netflix may be a more entertaining use of time. You may be able to do it for a longer period of time than you can read the Bible, but it won't satisfy. Like Jesus tells the woman at the well, all other sources of intake leave you thirsty, but the word of God quenches like nothing else can. If you want to show God that you love him, love the unlovable, the outsider, the outcast, and ground yourself in the truth. Cultivate an appetite for the truth, and God will become the only thing that satisfies you. I know Lent is coming up pretty soon. I don't remember exactly when it starts. I think third or fourth Sunday in February. But I was starting to ponder that recently, how we have so often taken something and assumed, well, that's a Catholic thing. We aren't going to do that anymore. We're free. We're Protestants. But there's something amazing about Lent. I don't know what I'm going to fast for, but I really want to do it this year. I invite you to do it with me, because when you fast for something, when you create need, when you create hunger and desire, 
that's when you start realizing how well or unwell things actually fill you. Probably going to fast from uh, social media because it's super sickening anyway. doesn't do any good for my brain. It's amazing how much you can waste the last part of the day. I don't know if anyone else does this, but it's like, oh, 10 o'clock, I should probably start heading to bed. I'll just check email and Facebook one more time. 11.30? What happened? I just watched a rabbit jump into a pool and a dog chase its tail. And who's doing what in Saudi Arabia? And none of it is relevant at all to my heart or my soul or anything that I'm going to do tomorrow. And instead of taking the time to prepare myself for whatever may come by centering myself on the Lord, I just blindly scroll and scroll and scroll. And it's endless, and they do it on purpose. Maybe read your Bible app on your phone if you're really addicted to that scroll, because you can just keep scrolling through the chapter. Whatever works for you. But if you want to show God that you love him, man, be people who love outsiders, because that's what Jesus was all about. And be people who love the truth, because Jesus is the truth. Will you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you that your word is truth. Thank you so much that we get the privilege to live in a time and a place where Bibles are legal, Bibles are everywhere. Lord, do not let us take for granted that your word is here. We probably have five copies on our shelf at home. Give us a hunger, Lord, that isn't satisfied by media. Give us a hunger that isn't satisfied by binge eating. Give us a hunger that isn't satisfied by people-pleasing. Let us starve if we do not find and stay in and dwell in and chew on and meditate on the word. And Lord, thank you for inviting outsiders. I think we can so easily forget that likely every single person in this church is a Gentile. Outside of the people of God, if it were not for the cleansing blood of Jesus. Every single one of us in this room would be heading to hell. Thank you, Lord, that you have saw fit to save us in your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is new every morning, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, along with our Jewish brothers and sisters, and you respond to us the same as you respond to them. Lord, give us boldness to reach out, to ask, to listen when people are sharing to look for hurt, to not be afraid of it, to be encouraged by the fact that we have the antidote, we have the medicine, we have the healing. It's the name of Jesus. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand up with me as we close with a final song?